Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Matt. Many of you might not know me, and that's, that's just fine. Uh, because you know a guy named Eldon, who is uh, a great pastor and pastors in this local, local campus. But he's helping out in Promontory Campus today because Jonathan, the campus pastor there, is off to Cuba um, with uh, Dr. Salazar. They're teaching uh, training pastors in Cuba. And uh, so we get to shuffle things a little bit. And it just warms my heart because I was in Lake Iraq earlier this morning and we have a number of people there who used to be at the Chilliwack campus but are pressing in there and some wonderful local people there. I come here and I'm seeing Marilyn and Len at the desk back there because Len's going to be a part of the Harrison thing. And so we got a lot of tag team going on and and training and uh, it's going to be neat to get to plant again. And so I look around and just praise God. Anna and Jesse leading worship this morning. We were part of Chilliwack a while ago, live in Agassiz, planted into this campus here. Love to see what God is doing um, through our church as you express your gifts and use them uh, across our campuses. Thank you for going. Thank you for sending. And thank you for being a part of uh, a gospel witness in uh, your local community. Um, We are doing this sermon series called Family Dynamics, which is uh, looking in at a bunch of different um, relational dynamics within the local church. And today we're going to look at marriage. Now, here's what I would say and why it's so important to talk about marriage in in, uh, a series on uh, different relational dynamics in the church. I would say that if a church does not have healthy marriages, it is destined to fail. It will not be a healthy church. But if a church is full of healthy marriages, I can assure you that that church will be a healthy place. And so the marriage relationship is a really foundational relationship, Uh, one of the relational dynamics that's so vital in the local church. And so we're going to talk about marriage. And one of the things that's really freeing about speaking at the Agassiz campus is that I can go Elden length of time, right, on my sermon? Is that okay? Usually I go normal length, but I'm going to go Eldon length, and uh, we like to tease him about that. Eldon's our our long preacher, and uh, you guys just love the Bible more. That's all that means, right? You guys are just into it more. Um, And so it's just a lot to say about marriage today. I'm going to try and uh, work through as quickly as I can, but there is a lot to say. Um, A number of you are not married in this room. I recognize that. Some of you have never been married. Some of you have been a part of a broken marriage. Um, Some of you are, um, there's all kinds of different dynamics, widowed perhaps. And so um, just a quick word to you as we get going. Some of you will be married someday. And I would argue that it's better to hear some of the things I'm going to say today before entering marriage than a ways in when you've got to do tons of correctives. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a more, um, it's a gift to be able to step into marriage with a clear vision of what marriage, Christian marriage is supposed to look like than um, muck it up a bunch and then try and uh, correct. Um, we all need to do correcting. That's inevitable. But... Uh, you get to have this vision of marriage. I think it'll help you. So listen well. Also, there are marriages around you. And so if you are not married, that does not negate the opportunity you have to speak into the marriages around you, the brothers and sisters in Christ who may have difficult seasons of marriage that you are able to encourage and challenge and bless and pray for having a good picture of marriage yourself, okay? Uh, I'll also let you know that I'm going to be quite candid here this morning about my own marriage. Uh, My wife has given me permission to do that. There were a number of years where she was like, don't you dare. And uh, now we're in a spot where she's like, yeah, okay. 
And so uh, she's, everything I say that sounds pretty, uh, pretty um, uh, intimate is like she's already, she said yes, okay? So, so hear that and know that. That's, that's key I found out in uh, being a preacher is check those stories first, not after. Um, and so that's been done. But the reason I'm going to tell you some of this stuff is because some of you are in the thick of it right now. Marriage is hard. And so uh, you're finding your marriage to be hard, and I, I want to be able to speak in and say, yeah, I, I know a bit about that. I know a bit about uh, marriage being hard and, and not being good at it and actually failing quite miserably in it. I, I want you to know that there's a preacher here who can relate to that. Um, I also want you to hear that if you're in the thick of it, you know what? There's hope. And um, some of you think, okay, yeah, you're the preacher, you preach the gospel, there's always hope. Yes, there's hope in the gospel, there's hope for you in Jesus, but hear me, there is hope for you in the gospel, in your marriage, that as hard and difficult and maybe on the ropes as it might be, there is actually hope for that to be a beautiful, flourishing marriage someday. I'm saying to you, there's hope, okay? There's real hope. I asked my wife, we've been married 14 years next month, I asked my wife, describe the first 14 years for me of what that was like. Here's what she said. You ready? Okay, I don't know if I'm ready, but here we go. She said, started with bliss, then shock, then anger, then despair, then more anger, then a season of real faith and reliance on Jesus, then a hard season, followed by another hard season, and then what she would describe as a sweet spot that we are sitting in now. And because of that history we have, we both kind of look at each other sideways and go, all right, which one of us is going to mess it up now? Because things are, things are like really sweet, who's going to mess this up? Because we've, just, we've been through a lot of stuff. And so um, for me, went into marriage, um, having viewed pornography and thinking to myself, you know what, once I get married, that'll go away, only to find that it wouldn't go away, but bring it into the marriage, only to find out that I w was really kind of... Um, prideful in one way, um, scared in another, and I just couldn't bring myself to be honest with my wife when we were newlyweds, and so she would ask if that was an issue for me. I'd be like, oh, in the past, but not now. And then the deceit rolls in, and then you get caught in the deceit, and then your, your spouse is looking at you when you say anything, and they're like, I'm not sure if I can trust that. And so we had to go through a real, like, real season of me finding um, sexual wholeness and healing and... Um, chastity really when it came to those things and just a real commitment to my wife alone. And then the other part of it was building back trust that we could trust each other's word, that she could take me at my word. And so um, that was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and, um, and uh, unpleasant conversations and uh, weird tensions in the house and all that kind of stuff. Um, to, to, to show you what rock bottom looked like for our marriage, and everybody's like, yes, you're right. That is, you are giving too much information. Um, rock bottom in our marriage was uh, at one point in an argument, she took off her wedding ring, put it in the toilet and flushed. And just before it went down the drain, I was able to grab it. And that happened twice. And so I stand here today being like, I know what it's like to literally have a marriage nearly flushed down the drain. I also know something of the hope that can be found in Jesus. A loving wife who didn't give up, even though there were days she wanted to flush it down the drain. To know that um, we have a, you know what Jesus loves to do? He loves to redeem things. 
The enemy loves to say to you and to me, irreparable, too much damage, nothing can be done. This marriage will always be rough. It will never be beautiful. Those are words of the devil. You know what Jesus does? Jesus comes along and says, I love to redeem. I can take your broken thing. I can take two broken hearts. I can take two sinful people. We can redeem this stuff. Jesus loves to do that. And so I stand here as something of an expert on marriage, okay? I'm an expert at being terrible at marriage. I'm also an expert at at watching Jesus take a marriage on the brink and be like, I can heal that. And so I get to hold out to you a hope for you as well. We're no different. So marriage is hard, and and I think Canadians know this. Studies are showing um, less people are getting married. Um, More people are cohabitating with a sexual partner, and a number of people are just remaining single. Um, They've seen so many marriages... um, Um, break up, um, go through uh, difficulty around them, failed marriages that they're like, forget marriage. I'm going to bypass marriage. I'll fulfill um, my sexual life in new ways, in different ways, or I'll be single, or I'll sleep with different people, or I'll cohabitate with someone, and essentially we'll be married, but we won't get married because marriage is a failure. Um, There are a lot of people in Canada, in the younger generations, feeling that way. Yet, strangely, there's a colliding um, movement as well uh, in Canada, which is um, there's this sense that at the same time, there are unrealistic expectations about marriage. So one is a pessimism, like, forget this, I don't know if we can trust it, it doesn't work, it's broken. But there's also this groundswell of like, you know what? I'm pessimistic about marriage, but if I could just find my soulmate, you know what'll happen? The thing about a soulmate is, this is, this is Hollywood's version that many people in our society have bought in, if I find my soulmate, just the right person, they will demand nothing from me, they won't ask me to change, but all of my felt needs will be met by this person. That's the vision of a soulmate. They won't ask me to change, they'll meet all my felt needs, and yet they won't ask a thing of me. It'll be easy. Everything will be easy. That's the vision of a soulmate. Now, I'll give you an example of a Hollywood film that does this. Uh, the Notebook. Anybody seen The Notebook? The Notebook, very popular film. And if you didn't get misty-eyed while watching The Notebook, you are either dead or lying, okay? That is a gorgeous piece of film right there, okay? Here's the storyline of, of the movie. There's this young, uh, young man, he's lower class, and um, he, he is smitten by this wealthy young woman, and they have this romantic escapade, and they have a summer of love kind of thing, and then because of the different social classes, and he has to go away, um, there's this distance that's created, and she starts to... Um, follow down the trajectory of marriage with another man, but he comes back into town and he woos her back and it's so romantic and and beautiful. And then the the film ends, it does better than most Hollywood films in that it ends actually with um, them in um, an old folks home and he's still tenderly in love with his wife and caring for her even on her deathbed. And we go, hey, you know what? That does better than most films where they just kind of fall in love, where they're with that person that's like such a, such a difficult person and everything's tough. And then they find the, their soulmate and this, everything's easy with this person. They must leave that person and go to, that's most Hollywood films. At least this one shows the end of their lives. But here's the thing. Even The Notebook skips what? The 60 years of working hard in a relationship so that at your deathbed, you still feel 
love and care and tenderness and serve one another. That's all skipped out in the film. We find that to be boring, and yet that's absolutely necessary in marriage, is the 60 years of hard work in between. So with soulmate romantic movie aspirations on the one hand and an understandable pessimism about the institution of marriage on the other, I think what we actually need in our culture today is a better vision than both of those for marriage. And Christianity affords us that better vision for marriage. I've got a good buddy, and he's a middle school teacher. And if this isn't a middle school illustration, I don't know what is. This grade eight boy uh, in his school, it was lunch hour. Um, my buddy locked the, the, the classroom door to his class over lunch, and he went off to the teacher's lounge or whatever, and there was a grade eight boy in his class um, who decided he wanted to get into the classroom before it was unlocked in, you know, in the middle of lunch break. And so he tried to pick the lock with a toothpick, which proceeded to break in the lock. And then as he tried to get it out, he just ended up pushing it in further. And so um, the start of the afternoon class for my friend was looking around the school for tools and uh, taking the door off its hinges so he could get his class back in. Now, it would be silly of us to, to go, you know what, you know, you, if, the, if the principal was like, you know the way that we can avoid this, let's get rid of locks and let's get rid of all toothpicks. The way that we avoid this ever happening again, let's get rid of locks and get rid of toothpicks. But that's precisely the groundswell in our culture today with marriage. It doesn't work. It's broken. It's found to be a failure. It's hard. Let's abandon it. Let's just get rid of marriage. And Christianity stands here and says, no, 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 no. Marriage is a beautiful gift. Let's redeem the thing. Let's redeem the broken thing. And the responsibility to do that in our culture today is those in the church, okay? So let's look at what a uh, Christian vision for marriage could look like. Would you stand with me? If you're able, and we are going to uh, read um, our text together from God's word. Ephesians chapter five, starting in verse 22. Here's what it says. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as, as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's word for us this morning. Why don't you have a seat? As I read that text, I know you all heard that word. I know you all heard that word, submit. I think it's impossible with modern ears not to hear that word and have alarm bells going off. And some of you are probably pretty skeptical at this moment going, wait a minute, if that's our text, are things going to get like hands made tail vibe in here? Like what's, what's about to happen with the rest of this sermon? Because that, that is a troubling text. Well, 
I would argue that for us to understand that rightly, I, I think the best thing for us to do is look at the call on the husbands first. And with that properly understood, with the Christian vision for husbands in marriage, I think then we can better understand what the call is to wives. And so let's start with the husbands. After telling wives to submit to their husbands, you might expect Paul to say to husbands, lead your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, lead your wives. But he doesn't say that. He says, love your wives. Love them. Husbands are called to lead in a way, in the way of, of the love of Jesus. That's the call. And it's a command to husbands that's repeated three times throughout the text. Verse 25, love your wives. Verse 28, love your wives. Verse 33, love your wives. And so what's going on here is this is requiring of husbands a sustained commitment of his will to love his wife sacrificially by servant-hearted leadership, ongoing. So there are actually three distinct ways, I think, that, that, that Jesus is calling husbands to love their wives. Let's look at the first. Husbands are called to love your wives with sacrificial love. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the verses preceding when it tells a wife to submit to her husband, it's, it gives the rationale because the husband is the head of the wife just as Christ is the head of the church. And we think of that word head and we go, okay, that's the boss, that's the CEO, that's one who calls the shots, that's the position of power. And I think in, in the worldly sphere, that's a correct assumption, but not so in the kingdom of God. Jesus paints the picture of leadership in... Um, Christianity, and he flips it. He's like, you want to be the leader? Be the servant of all. You want to be the greatest? Be the lowest. And so what does headship in marriage call a husband to do or be? What did headship over the church call Jesus to do or be? The answer is to be a servant leader. Verse 23 says, Christ is the savior of the church of which he is the head. And thus, following the analogy in verse 23, the husband is to exercise his headship. What does that look like? With servant leadership modeled after Jesus himself. Uh, some disciples of Jesus were arguing about who would be the greatest among them. And Jesus said, whoever would be greatest among you must be your servant. In other words, to be the head like Christ is to serve most. If you are going to exercise any form of headship in your home, husbands, dads, it's that people should look around and go, he serves the most of any of us. He's the greatest servant of us. So husbands, what should sacrificial love look like? I'll, I'll give you two word pictures to keep in mind. One is the cross and one is foot washing, okay? The text tells us that husbands should love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's a reference to the cross. And um, the sacrificial love of Jesus was so great that he was willing to die for her. Um, and I, I, I resonate with that. When I, when I've always read that text and gone like, you know what, if my wife was in danger, I really do believe that I would, I would protect her in a, in a moment of, of valiant masculinity, you know? I would take a bullet for her. I would protect her. I, you know, I, I, I think that that's true. I, I really believe that I would. But the question I think that we need to follow up with husbands is, would you walk 500 miles and then would you walk 500 more just to be the man who winds up at her door? 
We're like, yeah, in a moment, I'll do the act of bravery. But will I walk and walk and walk and walk? Anyways, yeah. You're welcome. That will be in your head for the rest of the day. All right. So it does mean the cross, husbands. It does mean that you, will, you should lay down your life for her. It may cost you your life. You should serve and sacrifice unto death. But day to day, most of the time, it means walking 500 miles. It means going the distance. It means foot washing, I think would be the biblical picture. When Jesus instituted the Last Supper, he met with his disciples in an upper room for a meal and there was no one to wash their feet. In that culture, the, the, the person with the lowest, the lowest on the totem pole in terms of rank was the one to wash feet, often that of a bond servant, a slave. They would take that role, but there wasn't one there. They had this borrowed room. And so now all the disciples are thinking, okay, well, Jesus is obviously the greatest, but they're thinking in their minds, okay, I might not be the greatest disciple, but if I'm not the greatest disciple, I'm, I'm second or third, there's no way I'm 12th. All of the disciples are thinking, there's no way I'm 12. So none of them will wash each other's feet. And what's the picture? Jesus, the night he is betrayed, gets down on his hands and knees with a basin and a rag, and he goes along washing each one of his disciples' feet. And they protest. And he's like, no, 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 no. This is what it looks like to lead in the kingdom of God. Peter, there's a weird fungus here, and this is pretty gross, but this is still the picture, okay? Right? Like that's, it's like, this isn't pleasant, still the call. What does sacrificial love for your wife look like, men? It looks like the cross, and it looks like foot washing, laying down your life for her and serving her. Second, there's another form of love we see in this text. So, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Then verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Second, husbands are called to love your wives with sanctifying love. Sacrificial love, now second, sanctifying love. Notice that the text says that the vision is of her being presented in splendor, of her being cleansed by the water and the word, of her without spot or wrinkle, holy and without blemish. That his, he's doing a kind of service, a kind of loving of her that she is presented blameless. Um, before Emily and I got married, when we were dating, uh, we dated for two months. And so somewhere in, in that uh, rapid process. Um, I said to her, you know what? I really feel that God's calling me to be a church planter, at the very least a pastor. I hear that that's a, like a terrible job. And I hear that the pastor's wife job is even worse. I hear that's the ultimate worst. And I, so just a heads up, that's where I'm headed. And so if we're going to get married, like you just got to factor that in. And she's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And so I really had uh, my plan of what I was going to do with my life my best laid plans. And I wanted to be a church planter in Vancouver. And so two months after our first child was born, we moved to East Vancouver. Uh, there's Commercial Drive in Vancouver, which has a lot of really great restaurants. We lived south of that on Commercial Street. There was nothing great, nothing great about Commercial Street. There was a lot, it was just, it was just eat bad East Van. And, uh, and that's where we lived. Had a two-month-old. My apprenticeship at the church there in Vancouver was not a great fit. It was tough on both of us. 
Um, our son, this newborn son, our first, uh, we didn't know what we were doing, and he was colicky, so he would just scream for two hours in the middle of the night. And as we were trying to apply a Christian marriage, we would just see which one of us could shove the other out the bed to deal with it in Christian love. I, I want to give you the privilege of that. And so just like we were, we were not great at sacrifice, uh, colicky son, not a great job, new uh, city. Um, we discovered that my wife had postpartum depression. It was a disaster. The whole thing was an absolute disaster. And it took years for me to realize that I wasn't loving my wife in a sanctifying way. My primary concern was not her flourishing. It was my own. I had these plans. I want you to be a great helper of me in my plans. I want you to take sacrifices to support me accomplishing my goals. That was my trajectory. And I look back at that now and realize I was not after her flourishing. I was after mine. So here's the question that I wish I had a better realization of in the first eight to 10 years of our marriage. Is my wife more like Jesus because she is married to me? Or is she more like Jesus in spite of me? Oof. Is that a rumbling in our souls or is that the train? Okay, that's, the, that's the train. I thought, I, thought like the spirit, I thought there was like a weird conviction happening that I could audibly hear. Okay. Is my wife more like Jesus because she's married to me? Or is she more like Jesus in spite of me? Or is she a bit turned off by Christianity because of the way you wield the Bible for selfish reasons? Husbands, we are called to, to be a sanctifying presence. Only Jesus can sanctify, but you know what his favorite tool to use in the sanctifying work of a spouse is husbands for their wives. So it's, it's capturing a vision of her redemptive potential. What are her gifts? What are her dreams? How can I lay my life down to see her thrive in faith and godliness? That is the call here. And you know what? In recent years, it's been really fun to watch my wife thrive and flourish in her gifts and in her faith. When our youngest son went into kindergarten, she went back to school. She got her degree. She's a social worker now, and she's already like uh, team leading in her office, and it's a crazy job. And, and the Tables are turning. Sometimes Emily would be referred to as Matt's wife. Now it's like Emily. And like, who's that guy? Oh, that's Emily's husband. And I love that. Like, I'm at a stage in my life where I'm excited about that. I want to see her flourish. That's my greatest joy and aim in our marriage. And that's the call in this sanctifying form of love from husbands. But it goes on. There's a third form. Let's go to verse 28. It says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Who... He who loves his wife loves himself, for, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So third, husbands are called to love your wives with satisfying love. And at first, I thought Eldon would be here and could see that the, all three started with an S, and he'd be the only one who would think that was awesome, and he's not even here. So he loves that stuff. So anyways, amen, amen. Husbands are called to love their wives with a sacrificial love, a sanctifying love, and third, a satisfying love. Look, um, emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually, it's normal to try and take care of ourselves, 
right? During the weirdness of COVID, we were all like, how do we stay healthy? How do we stay sane? And we've been trying to, you know, have these kind of mental health processes in our lives of, of exercising and still getting outside and, and still having relationships, even in the challenge of it and stuff. Why? So that we ourselves can be healthy in all of these different ways. And it's very normal. It's human nature to do that for ourselves. But the call in these verses is for husbands to love their wives in such a way that their well-being is invested in, and they feel nourished and cherished by their husbands. In other words, put her needs above your own and seek to make her feel cherished. Um, I don't know if there's a book that came out, what, 20 years ago, maybe more, um, called uh, The Five Love Languages, really popular book. And um, if you haven't heard of it, there's, there's essentially five different ways that we feel loved by others. And it's really helpful to know in the context of marriage, but in, in, with friends and family as well. It's really helpful uh, to know. And so The Five Love Languages, is, if you're not familiar, is one of the love languages is touch. Another is words of affirmation or words of affection. Third is gifts, like presents. Uh, fourth is quality time, and fifth, acts of kindness. Now, it took my wife and I, we, we, we learned these and knew these, and yet what we didn't know was that what, what we do naturally is, I'm a words of affirmation person. Terrible thing for a preacher, because you live or die on your last sermon and the small talk afterwards. So be kind, everybody, okay? Or I may not come back. No, that's not true. I will. I'll come back regardless. But mine was words of affirmation. So if I wanted to express love to my wife, what do you think I would do? I would sit her down. I'd say, I, I, mean, I, just, I just need you to know, like, there's just so, so many qualities that I love about you. And I just thought we could spend some time. And I would just list those for you and let you know how much I love you. Or I'd, I'd take time and write it in a card. And I'd leave that card somewhere. Now, here's the problem with that. All well and good. I wanted her to know how much I loved her. The problem was her love language is gifts, which, if we're all being honest, is the absolute worst of these five, right? I think that four of them are from the Lord and one of them is from the devil. And the one that's from the devil is gifts. And I came from like a really like a spendthrift family where like, well, that's not spent. That's unnecessary. Why would we buy that? That's the way I grew up. And she grew up with like her mom would just have like a floor full of presents for each child at Christmas because that's the way that mom would say I love you to her kids. And so Emily would see a card to her and she would pick it up and be like, where's the present? And she like tossed the card away and started looking for the present. And I'm like, no, 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 the present is the card. Meanwhile, I would come home from work and there would be this like extravagant, beautiful gift for me, which is very thoughtful, sure. But you know what I would do? I would walk up and be like, where's the card on top of this? Because I just want to read the words. I just want to hear the words. I don't care, really care about this gift. We did that for years. Not realizing, oh, wait a minute. I like to receive by the, like, people saying stuff. But she senses that I love her. If I take the time to hear what she mentioned two months ago, and I took the initiative to source that thing out and get it, and then just place it there, and she goes, the amount of time that you must have been thinking about me to buy me this present is incredible. Meanwhile, she's like, words are cheap, you know? But now she's learned to be like, I love you, Matt. You're so thoughtful. And, you know, and it's like, and I'm just like, thank you, you know, and sleep like a baby that night. And so it's, let me save you some years, okay? If, if you miss each other on the expressions of love, just make sure, find out what theirs is 
and express their way to them. That's what hits. Look, selfishness is a trait in every human being as a result of the fall, as a result of sin. I would argue, man, that young men especially, but men in general, are disproportionately selfish and entitled. If there are a bunch of people in the room and there's a young man in the room, that guy's probably the most selfish and entitled. It's just, just, it's just ratio-wise, statistics would argue that being true. And, and there's all kinds of language for this, like boys who can shave. They're in a man's body, but they're still acting like boys or man-agers. Like they're men in like chronological age, but they're still acting like teenagers or whatever it is, boys in men's bodies, selfish and entitled. So the call here, men, is to grow up, to grow in a selflessness that puts the needs of your wife and then even your children before your own. And you just go to bed tired, and then you put their needs ahead of you again the next day and the next day. The call to, is this is actually how you will be sanctified, men. Selfish and entitled, pour out love to your wife in a way that you sacrifice for her. Pour out love for your kids in a way that you sacrifice for them. And before you know it, you're pouring your life out for those around you in ways of love, and it's not about you. And Jesus is doing that work in your heart by giving you people right in your own home for you to invest in well. So I started with the men. I know I was a little bit hard on you there, guys, but sacrificial love, sanctifying love, um, satisfying love. Now we can get to those words that um, sound challenging in our moment. Let's go back to verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for, he is the hus- for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Wives. Wives are called to submit to your husband, verses 22 to 24. Now, first thing I want to say, we are all called to submit to all kinds of things. The Bible tells us that we are called to submit to governing authorities. Children are called to submit to parents. Christians are called to submit to one another. Um, church, a church is called to submit to its leaders. And ultimately, Christians are called to submit to Christ. But the Apostle Paul does not tell husbands to submit in the context of marriage. He tells wives to submit. So what are we to make of that? What we see is that wives are called to submit to their husband. But here's the question we have to ask ourselves. What is she submitting to? What is she submitting to? A lazy slob who yells for a beer, another beer from the couch? Not so much. A selfish man who twists this verse, submit to your husband. A selfish man who twists this verse and spiritually manipulates his wife to get what he wants. Not so much. She is submitting to a man who is dying to himself to present her holy and in splendor. A man who is sacrificing, sanctifying, and satisfying her. I'm going to load up the wives with a little ammunition here. This is a dangerous thing to do. I think it's necessary. Wives, if your husband ever says anything along the lines of, woman, submit, I want to argue that you can say back to him, man, die. (laughs) And you have biblical grounds to do it. Why? Well, the word to wives is submit to your husbands. What's the word to men? Die for her. 
right? As Christ loved the church, you're to love. Woman, submit. Man, die. Look, the vision for submission is to submit to a man who is loving you, who is sacrificing for you, who's living out his call to nourish and to cherish you. Look, submission is a very unpopular word today, and I think some of the time we attach some wrong modern-day assumptions to it. Let me show you a couple. Like, contrary to what we think in our day, submission in Scripture does not equal inequality. It doesn't. In Genesis chapter 1, we see that God creates um, a husband and a wife, man and woman. And the way he creates woman in Genesis 2, we see, is that he takes a rib out of Adam's side. And so she's not to be one behind him or in front of him, but beside him. They are partners. They are equals in this relationship. Not only are they equals, but look, God is described over and over again in the Bible as our helper, as our help. And we never think to ourselves of God, oh, helpmate, helper, oh, that's inferior. We would never say that of God. In fact, the sermon series on the Trinity we did a few months ago shows us that Jesus submitted to the Father, the Son to the Father, and we never think to ourselves, Jesus is inferior to the Father. Luke twenty two forty two. Father, Jesus says, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In 1 Corinthians eleven three, I want you to understand, says the Apostle Paul, that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. But we cannot say that means that he's inferior, just as we wouldn't say the wife is inferior. That's not the call here. That's not the statement here. In John 6, 3, 8, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Look, there's no need to choose between authority and equality as if they, they can't coexist. You can have both. Just look at the Trinity. So in the marriage relationship, Christ is the motivation and the means for the husband and the wife, but in gender-specific, God-designed roles. That statement I just said is one of the most wildly unpopular statements in our cultural moment. But it's absolutely what Ephesians chapter 5 is saying. In the marriage relationship, Christ is the motivation and the means for the husband and the wife, but in gender-specific, God-designed roles. Husbands look to the sacrificial leadership of Jesus, and wives look to the willful submission of Jesus to God the Father. And again, I want to remind you, submission to what? Submission, wives, to a husband dying to love you. The church's submission to Christ is the model for a wife's submission to her husband. One more for, for the wives in the room. Look at verse 33. It says, husbands, love your wives. Uh, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So second calling on wives is wives are called to respect your husband. Now, the, the respect a wife shows her husband is a determination for flourishing in God-given roles. Paul is using this word respect primarily for the role the person occupies and not the particular merits of the person. Respect, therefore, is offered voluntarily from the heart. How do I worship Jesus in my marriage? I'm going to show my husband respect, even at times when, man, that guy is a bozo or whatever, you know, using my churchy language. I don't know. 
The goal in all of this is that we would embrace God's design for flourishing marriages, to fulfill our roles with grateful acceptance, calling husbands to sacrificially love their families and wives to graciously submit to their husbands for the good of the family. This honors God and sanctifies us. As I said before, our bent is always towards selfishness and autonomy. And so wives, submission actually leads to your sanctification. I don't want to press in with him. I want to bolt. Submission leads to your sanctification, and showing him respect leads to your sanctification. It actually sanctifies you, just as a husband dying to his selfish ambition sanctifies him. Do you see how that, that the sanctifying work of Jesus in a wife's life and a husband's life, how that's at play specifically there? Um, There's this great book written a number of years ago built on this text. It's called Love and Respect by Emerson Egricks, a Christian psychologist. And he shows some ways that a wife can show respect to her husband. And he, he, he lists them like this. He says, appreciate his desire to work and achieve. Appreciate his desire to protect and provide. Appreciate his desire to serve and to lead. Appreciate his desire to analyze and counsel. Appreciate his desire for friendship and intimacy. You know, I can, I, I can relate to these. You know, the times my wife has said, I love how hard you work for our family or you take such good care of me. When she says those things, I could just like float away. I could, I could just die happy. Like, call it. It's, I'm good. Like, that's all I need. There's this sense from her of I see what you're doing and I appreciate what you're doing for us. When that kind of language is used for a guy, that is love. So I find it interesting in this text. It's like, husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. You're like, that's weird. You just expect it to say, husbands, love your wives. Wives, love your husbands. I think it is saying that. But it's saying it in a specific way. Look, the way that I feel loved by my friends, if, if I am sitting with my buddies and I know to a man they respect me, I'm like, oh, man, these guys love me. Or if I'm respected in my job by my coworkers, they love me. When my wife, when, I, when, she, when she's showing uh, like that she respects me, wow, she loves me. And so wives, I just need to say a word to you. I said some stuff to the guys, like grow up. <laughs> so <laughs> wives, um, I, I just need you to recognize you hold a lot of power in the marriage relationship. You hold a lot of power. And I'm thinking specifically here, especially of your words. Your words can either build up or tear down your husband. You know that, right? Do you speak words into your husband that bring life or words that breed death? Do you build him up or do you tear him down? You know you have the power of the words and so you go, you know what, this'll hurt him, this'll cut him. I'm gonna use my words to it. That's how I cut the legs off from under him. Jesus is like, Respect your husband. And as you press into that, believe me, there will be a sanctifying work that happens in your heart, in your life. As you're about to say that thing, you know will tear him down. And you go, you know what? I'm going to bless him. There is nobody on the planet whose words matter more to me than my wife's. So when she cuts me down, I could not get lower. But when she speaks words of life... I cannot get higher. I can conquer the world. My wife believes in me, you know? 
Be a helper fit for him. What does that mean? Use your gifts and role to, play, to draw out his headship as he grows into his role of sacrificially laying down his life for you. So when men try and attempt some of this stuff, maybe in the coming days or weeks, wives, you notice them pressing into some of this, these ways they should love you. They're attempting to do it. Can I just encourage you? No sarcasm, no nagging, no condescension. Even if he doesn't quite get it right, but he's trying, like he tries to build you up and you're like, well, that was awkward. Just, just say that in your mind, but say, thank you. Or use what the South do. They just say, bless your heart. It's like a backhanded insult, but it sounds really kind. Bless your heart. Thank you. No, don't do that. Just, just be sincere. If you see the effort, respect the effort. And husbands, make the effort. Um, look, we're, we should be done, but we're not nearly done. Um, I need to show you how all of this actually is a picture of the gospel. Verse 31 says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Here's the big vision of Christian marriage. The purpose of Christian marriage is to be a pointer to the relationship between Christ and the church. What I'm holding in my hands is a Bible. And we, we, we think a lot of things about this. Or someone might say, How, describe this to me. What's the story here? And we probably share the gospel and Jesus in that, and that is correct. But one of the ways that we can view the entire Bible is recognize, wait a minute. The, the Bible opens with a man and a woman. The Bible closes with a man and a woman, Jesus and his bride. The Bible opens with a wedding. The Bible closes with a wedding. The Bible opens with a marriage. The Bible closes with a marriage. And everything in between is essentially a love story. God chasing down his beloved. And every Christian marriage has the ability to tell this story. Marriage is broken in our culture. One of the best ways that we can show Jesus to the world is to show them Christ and his church in our marriages. I say this line in every wedding that I perform. Thousands of years ago, before Jesus came, God created marriage between a man and a woman to be a visible picture to the world of an even greater union to come, Jesus and his people. In other words, thousands of years before Jesus came, God made marriage between husbands and wives to be a picture of Christ and the church. So here's the gospel said in the way of marriage. Jesus left his father in heaven to hold fast to his wife. What did he do? He put his life on the line. He even made a covenant with her, with his blood, so that as unlovely and unlovable as she was when he approached her and he died for her, she could become lovely and lovable because of his committed, sacrificial love. His goal was to nourish and cherish, to sacrifice for her, to sanctify her. Listen, your marriage is about so much more than you and your spouse. It's meant to be a picture of the gospel, a picture of Christ and the church. The ultimate purpose and perfect model for human marriage is the relationship between Christ and the church. So that's what Paul is saying. So back in Genesis 1, we have this language of, um, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, Genesis 1. Then Jesus picks it up in the Gospels and says the exact same thing. Now the apostle Paul picks it up here, says the exact same thing, and adds, and I'm telling you, this mystery is profound. What's the profound mystery? 
that human marriage is actually meant to just be a picture of Christ in the church. And the calling for us is actually to show the world how beautiful that is. Our marriages should preach the gospel of relational reconciliation in a culture of relational fracture. That the way we treat each other makes people take notice and say, how is it that you love each other like that? And you go, that's that's the vision. Our vision for that is Jesus and the church. So listen, I had a bunch of practical applications we could do, but I have recorded those online as well. Maybe you can grab those. So let me just close with this. That story, opening and closing with a wedding and everything in between, telling that love story. Can I just tell the men in the room, husbands, tell this story in your marriage. Wives, tell this story in your marriage. May the marriages represented here tell that story of relational reconciliation and redemption to the world around us. Let's pray. Jesus, you redeem things. You take broken things and you, you heal and you restore. Jesus, I, I, just, I just give you praise. You've done that in my life. You're continuing to do that. I have so many sharp edges, Lord, that I need, I need to be refined. And, and, and you have given me no better person in my life than my wife to, to lovingly show me those and to, to lead to my sanctification. And Lord, as I press into loving my wife well, that sanctifies me and her as well. And so Jesus, I just wanna pray a prayer of blessing over the marriages here. Some are a really beautiful picture to the world of Christian marriage and the beautiful vision that it shows the world. And some are just really in the thick of it and just hanging on. And uh, Jesus, I just wanna pray a, a prayer, a blessing, a prayer of hope over those. Uh, Jesus, I pray that you would make us the kind of loving uh, church family that come alongside each other and encourage and bless and lean in and, and want to see marriages thrive around us. I know so many stories of that taking place in our midst, um, bringing, brought, being brought through uh, the adversity. So Jesus, I pray hope, I pray healing, I pray reconciliation, and may our marriages show the redemption that is ultimately found in you. In Jesus' name, amen.